0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Drought's brutal impact, and the impact it's having on the cattle herd at the lowest level since 1962. Unforgiving heat that's wore out its welcome in the South and is now baking the Midwest.
2: Crop conditions, we believe, will be down 2 to 3% on Monday.
1: As commodity prices also reacting to Russia's ramped up attacks on Ukrainian ports. A leap of faith. How this female farmer's decision to leave her corporate job four years ago served as a wake-up call that's now inspiring
3: others. And I was holding my new baby. I just realized, like, that's important, but this is the most important. So that's kind of where... I totally took a 180 on what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become. And in John's world.
4: Good news about the COVID pandemic.
0: U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the testing grounds meet the proving grounds. Pioneer, what's next happens here.
1: Now for the news, it's been a big week for heat with millions of people enduring temperatures above 100 degrees and over 85 percent of the population seeing temps over 90. While a dome of heat has settled over Arizona for weeks, this late July surge is pushing temps into the triple digits much further north. The temperatures in parts of the Corn Belt could create additional heat stress to that area's corn and soybean crops. Meteorologists say it's another knock on already stressed crops, especially in areas battling drought this season.
5: Areas like Missouri and parts of neighboring states extending into Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, all due for multiple days of triple digit heat, 100 degrees or higher. And then looking at the drought map where you see that existing drought, especially the higher levels of drought, your D2s and D3s, severe to extreme drought. It could get a little dicey later this week with that combination of heat and drought.
1: Russia continues to ramp up hits of Ukrainian ports and grain infrastructure, but it's not worst case scenario yet for the world's grain supplies. Reuters reporting nearly 30 ships have dropped anchor near Ukraine's Ismail port after grain warehouses were destroyed on the Danube River. The damage is likely to force more exports over land, which is slower and more expensive. Analysts say escalations is likely, and the bigger threat for increasing global hunger concerns is losing exports from Russia.
6: In my mind, it's more about Russia. There's been talk that Russia's gonna keep some of that wheat off the market for an internal um, supply uh, reserve, so to speak. Um, That really is maybe the biggest picture is, will Russia continue to supply the world uh, now that that Black Sea is closed?
1: Adding to the uncertainty, the EU is also revising its crop yields lower due to adverse weather conditions. The U.S. cattle herd continues to shrink with the number of beef cows now the lowest since 1962. USDA putting the July 1st total cattle inventory at just under 96 million head. That's down 3% from the same time last year. It puts all cows and heifers that have calved at 38.8 million head down 2% and beef cows coming in at 29.4 million head down
6: 3%. When we look at the breakdown, cows and heifers, uh, they were two percent below a year ago. Beef cows three percent below a year ago. So we
0: have seen that lower inventory, which which we have been seeing, and that indicates that it will take a little bit longer to get out of this this tightness of the
7: cattle market. A
1: decline in glyphosate demand prompted Bayer to make another cut to its expected earnings this week. But one analyst thinks the issue may actually be supply not demand. This week, Bayer announcing it was cutting its projected 2023 earnings, calling for $14.9 billion below what the company reported in 2022. In May, Bayer warned inflation and falling prices of glyphosate-based herbicides could cause it to miss its earning forecast. Bayer's then-CEO told investors the company needed to lower expectations of what it can charge for glyphosate products. BASF also cutting its earnings forecast earlier this month. Sam Taylor of Rabobank telling us that China's manufacturing of active ingredients is back online. That accounts for 60 to 70 percent of global production, causing a glut of glyphosate.
0: I think that the global pricing at the moment is sub four dollars a gallon um, in China so you've had that drop from about let's see about 16 17 dollars a gallon in 2022 so it's now like 25 percent of what it was uh, that's the main catalyst of it is just the kind of the cost curve a shift down chinese production um uh back online and they account for about two-thirds of global
1: production Taylor says ag retailers and suppliers continue to cut the price of glyphosate to help offload expensive inventory in preparation for the fall. Well, there appears to be strong bipartisan support for limiting foreign investors from buying U.S. farmland. On Tuesday night, the Senate approved an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would prohibit entities from China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea from buying U.S. farmland. The vote passed 91-7. to 7. Six Democrats and one Republican voted against it. Vietnam taking a big step in the battle against African swine fever. The country officially approving the domestic commercial use of two vaccines. The decision makes them the world's first to be commercially available. African swine fever has disrupted the global pork market for years. In 2018 and 2019, about half of the domestic pig population in China died, causing losses estimated at over $100 billion. It's the world's biggest producer. These vaccines stand as a significant breakthrough in battling the deadly disease. Officials say more than 650,000 doses have been tested on hog herds in 40 provinces with an efficacy rate of 95 percent. That's it for the news. Well, the heat stealing headlines this week and it seems like weather news could heat up again next week with talk of a ring of fire. What it means, that's in your forecast next. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joining us. Andrew, the high heat that expanded this week was really the storyline for many of our viewers this past week. But as we see that Ridge shift, could it actually spark some severe weather coming up this next week?
8: And Tyne, we continue to again watch this area of high pressure, this big heat dome, all thanks to this Ridge that is built across much of the lower 48. And luckily, as we go throughout this Sunday, we're going to start to see it backtracking just a little bit back off further towards the south. Uh, but unfortunately, though, if you live uh, south at around the four quarter states on the Phoenix, Dallas. Over into Memphis, down across parts of the Deep South, we're still going to be raging on with temperatures that are likely at times during the afternoon going to reach that triple digit heat mark. Luckily for the Great Lakes and Midwestern states, though, which just had their hottest temperatures, likely of the 2023 season, we're likely to cool on off as a nice little trough begins to dip on down into those regions. And as we advance the jet stream going forward for the rest of this week, again, you'll see that the dome of high pressure starting to lift its way back off further towards the south. Uh, But nonetheless, again, really this week, and last week, and these are the two week periods that we've been phrasing as likely going to end up being the hottest point here of summer 2023 across the country and we will have to watch out for a few stronger storms where we do have that ridge of high pressure colliding with again that trough here. And as we go throughout this week, we are going to be watching parts of the central Plain States, which really does need the moisture here. Hopefully again we can squeeze out some timely showers and thunderstorms as these uh, greens and yellows tries to work their way right along the uh, northern and eastern side there of that Ridge as it begins to try to break down and retract just a little bit further off towards the south here. As we go throughout this week, looking at the latest root zone map here, again, we are watching for the potential here for some timely rains once again for parts of the central plains and parts of the central parts of the Midwest, which really do need the moisture. And we really need the moisture up along the Pacific Northwest as well, where you see those deeper and darker reds. That's again where we're watching for some very dry. To extreme conditions, and looking at the latest U.S. Drought Monitor, which was just released this past Thursday, again our attention, which has been kind of our attention all the way since March in the spring months, we've been watching central and eastern uh, Nebraska as well as uh, Kansas, there, where again we continue to still see some very dry conditions. So again, hopefully we can squeeze out some of those timely showers and thunderstorms for those locations. Look at our precipitation outlook here as we get ready to turn the page here to a brand new month and kick off August here. Again, we are hopeful that again we can get some of those timely showers and thunderstorms to parts of the Plain states as well as up across the Pacific Northwest. And there's that dome of high pressure. You can really see where the heat is likely going to stick around for and that does include much of the Plain states, at least the southern and central half, the deep south and the four corner states where afternoon high temperatures will likely still be dancing around that triple digit heat mark.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Well, the weather plus escalation in Ukraine, how much of an impact did those two major events have on the markets this week? And what are our analysts keeping an eye on this coming week? Dan Bossi and Alan Brugler, they join me next. Welcome back, Alan Brugler and Dan Bossi joining us this weekend. Well, a lot to talk about with the markets, starting off with Monday. Just an impressive move with wheat, wheat prices up the limit. Alan, will you look back to how things started on Monday? Was it truly some changes with the Russian and and Ukraine situation or did something else drive that?
0: Well, I I think you had a technical setup that would made us vulnerable or or, uh, fertile ground for a rally. And then you had the uncertainty about the Russian situation when they started destroying port infrastructure and basically taking Ukraine out for a longer period of time. Then they hit the barges, which was your relief valve, where you expected the grain was going to go next. Uh, We had to put a little risk premium in there, and uh, then it kind of fed on itself. Shorts were scrambling to cover. The the funds were were pushing their advantage if they were long already, and uh, you ended up with Chicago pushing limit up for a day there.
1: Well, Dan, in our July Ag Economist Monthly Monitor survey, one economist said, listen, we're not at worst case scenario yet when it comes to this grain deal. If Russia would get hit maybe with, you know, a, um, a vessel of wheat or with oil, that's when things would change. Do you agree with that?
2: No, I do. And, and for a while, Russia was down where the Azov Sea and the the Kirsch Bridge, if you will, was down. So their exports out of the Azov were shut off. It only takes one sinking of vessel under the Kirsch Bridge or nearby. The drafts are only 25 to 30 feet, and that whole area would be shut down. Now, that's 35% of Russian wheat trade. Last year, they exported 48 million tons. So it's a bunch, and that's what the world wheat miller and importer is really worried about.
1: At the same time, Dan, Russia, the wheat crop there, I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a really big crop. Is that the case?
2: I think it's going the other way. We are estimating the, uh, based on yield data coming in from the key provincial areas, somewhere around 83 million tons, USDA is at 85. So we've been trimming, Uh, spring wheat crop will also be down, but really what bothers us is the quality. Uh, Too much rain in some areas of the key export areas. And so uh, falling numbers are coming down. Protein levels will be lucky to exceed 12, 12 and a half percent. A lot of wheat will be in that 10 and a half to 11 and a half percent rate. And key importers like Nigeria and others, may not be able to use Russian wheat. So that may force it to the EU or other countries. I think it's pretty important longer term. And it tells me that the world wheat market has made a longer term bottom.
1: Well, as we see this escalation take place, Alan, you know, there's some questions on if we're going to see Ukrainian grain actually make it through the EU. Do you continue to think that this situation will impact grains in the near term?
0: I think you're going to see an impact from it. I don't anticipate that it'll be as wild as it was in 2022 when the when the invasion originally happened. Uh, what's a little different now is uh, while world stocks usage ratios are still snug ex China, particularly, uh, we we know that there'll be some substitution, some some uh, diversion of grain flows. It, it, it might depress prices or, or boost prices temporarily as you use uh, country A buys from country C instead of country B. Uh, wheat probably had a nice uh, cycle low, trading cycle low, harvest low there in uh, earlier in the spring. So we are looking for a, a, a seasonal rally in wheat. Uh, corn's a little different situation, but if, if wheat goes strong, then I think it'll drag corn higher too
1: well another big market mover this week weather so Dan as you look at last week and the expectations for the heat but also the spotty chances of rain showers you know what what commodity did it impact the most this week
2: well it impacted uh, corn soybeans and spring wheat it was across the board uh, it was that hot uh, Montana all the way up until Nebraska and then catching over to Illinois so uh, crop conditions we believe will be down two to three percent on Monday in corn soybeans and spring wheat we'll see how it all plays out but you know, it's the weather during August which will be the big determinant, of it, and especially for the soybean crop. So as we look at it, we're sitting today at about a 173 corn yield. We're looking at soybeans at around 50 and a half. We'll see how Mother Nature treats us going forward. That's down from USDA. It's not a disaster, but it's surely not the kind of crop we could have.
1: All right, well, Alan, he recently had a crop tour, so we're going to get some insight on that. Plus, some Chinese demand coming in. Could more be on the way? We'll talk about that with Dan and Alan later on the show.
9: Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you.
1: Well, this news may be a couple of years too late for some of you, but the COVID pandemic is officially over. So what's behind the most recent declaration? John Phipps explains in John's World.
4: By one important, perhaps the most important metric, the pandemic is over. While cases have been dropping for over a year, it takes a while for the final verdict on deaths. Epidemiologists use the measure called excess deaths. With centuries of increasingly reliable data to draw upon the Center for Disease Control, the CDC projects with remarkable accuracy what the normal death rate is and should be in the near future. The census provides us with numbers and ages of our citizens and with techniques to adjust for unusual occurrences. We know with pretty fair accuracy how many people should die how fast. COVID produced deaths above that expected line, which are termed excess deaths. This graph of that data shows the spikes from COVID variants like Omicron, as well as the original outbreak. While there are still many sufferers from long COVID, deaths from the virus have dropped to be too small to move the normal death rate noticeably. This pattern is reflected in other nations as well which is to be expected from a global pandemic. These are dry statistics that do little justice to the loss of over a million American lives or the enduring grief of their survivors. In addition, there's growing evidence. The pandemic disrupted the education and development of a wide range of students with undoubtedly long lasting effects. Businesses and consumers have made myriad adjustments from stocking up on a favorite food rather than expecting it to be on the shelf to carrying more repair parts in local inventory. To me, the most surprising residue in our nation and culture has been the relatively speedy decision by most citizens to put the COVID experience behind us. As uh, politics heat up before 2024, Pollsters are in general agreement, COVID is not a big burning political issue. Despite the intense debate during our struggle with the infection, few seem to want to revisit those arguments. Maybe it's a short attention span, maybe it's weariness with the topic, maybe it's still too painful for too many. For whatever reason, COVID isn't just statistically over, it's like, you know, over.
1: Thanks, John. Up next, a trip to meet the Colonel. No, it's not a person, but a Ford tractor that one couple who's known for naming their tractors has a very special bond. That's in Tractor Tales,
4: next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. We are headed to Ohio this week to meet the Colonel and check out a Ford 3000 with special ties to the owner.
7: Gas. Uh, early 70s um, it come from my wife's aunt and it come out of an orchard In keeping with naming of things this is our colonel uh, Lou was a lieutenant colonel in the army he was in Korean War and love company and they did their first... They had the first offensive win against the North Koreans. So when this came up for sale, we jumped on it, we had to have it. So all we've done to it is a little bit of carburetor work since we got it um, and put back tires on it. Yeah there, there was no real, uh, the kids had no connection hardly to it at all. They didn't really, they just knew it sat in the barn. He mowed, he's mowed his orchard, that's why there's no exhaust on it, it's underslung. Um, that's why it's kind of beat up. Just to the fact that they, they've used actually the PTO clutches out of this thing for being abused on the his brush hog was probably way too big for what it needed, what it could handle. It's roughly 40 horse, 10 foot brush hog is probably pretty much stretched for that. Actually, we pull water wagon with it. It goes to two different shows during the summer to actually do water wagons for steam engines. Uh, it goes to a big one down in Amish country and then it goes to Dover. Yes, we'll have to do some more work to it. It's gonna need a nose piece, it's gonna need fenders. It's gonna to have to up be, do some upkeep to it just to keep it preserved. So, but it'll always be, you know, our kernel.
1: All right, up next, how this 32-year-old mom took a big risk four years ago, now back with her farm and family full-time. But it's her journey to find contentment in the midst of change that's now an inspiration to others. We'll have
0: her story next. U.S. Farm Report
5: is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Times Women of Ag is brought to you by John Deere, who celebrates
0: the strength and resilience of the women who make farms run.
9: Well, it
1: was a big risk leaving her corporate job to come back to the farm and family full-time. But four years later, Mary Pat Sass's leap of faith is now inspiring others, as we share with you this weekend in our ongoing series, Women of Ag. This isn't the view Mary Pat Sass envisioned for her life even a decade ago.
3: I grew up on a dairy farm, loved everything about it. But I just didn't see a place for me to come back.
1: With an older brother who was more involved on their Wisconsin dairy farm, she wanted to get into the ag industry,
3: but not necessarily farming. I could never sit still, so that's why I kind of got into the field work more. And that's kind of where my passion continued to grow. But then I got a job, my dream job, for a corporation, and I worked in their ag technology department.
1: After college, her dream job put her on the road, which eventually led her here.
3: I had never planned to live here, but I met my husband while I was working in the area, and he just stole my heart.
1: Mary Pat and her husband Josh are celebrating seven years of marriage this weekend, tackling life hand in hand on Sass's family farm in Woodstock, Illinois.
2: We are fifth generation. Uh, my grandpa came out from Chicago area, was a vegetable farmer, started farming grain. Uh, my dad continued on and us three boys are continuing from there.
1: Even after Josh and Mary Pat got married, she was still living the corporate job life
3: constantly on the road. I loved the job because I got to work with farmers, I got to help them, and I really did feel like that was a job that I was able to make a difference for farmers.
1: So girl don't worry. But now, my dreams changed. Five years ago, after becoming a mom, Mary Pat describes it as a light bulb moment.
3: And I was holding my new baby. I just realized, like, that's important, but this is the most important. So that's kind of where I totally took a 180 on what I wanted to do and who I wanted to become.
1: So with that, she took a big risk, leaving her full-time corporate job to focus on her family full-time.
3: I had no plans when I left my job, but I ended up starting my own small business She says it's the best decision she could have made, and one supported by Josh. He's always been so supportive of whatever I feel like is going to be the right route. He's been supportive of me.
1: Even when she left her job, Mary Pat says she didn't think she would be so involved on the farm. And while it's not what she does full-time, during the busy seasons, you'll find her here.
3: So I'm mostly on tillage. Most of the time I have my daughter with me. She's the two-year-old, and yeah, we've been kind of the dynamic duo out there in the tractors she shares
1: glimpses of her life with her immediate family and on the farm here on social media which launched with a funny moment on the farm four years ago
2: she'd packed this really nice lunch for me and i had to call her about an hour later and say hey uh i ran over my lunchbox."
3: it was like one of those things that happened where i was like this kind of stuff happens all the time to us just random stuff like this and I feel like people get entertainment from it. And in just four years, her social media following has grown more than she imagined. I had been feeling a pull to help support agriculture as I had been in a different way in my prior role. And now as a mom, I was like, "I'm, I'm supporting it here with my family, but I would love to be a voice for more and try to connect with other farm families and maybe some consumers as well. She tries to reach other farm wives. Don't let anyone tell you you can't have pretty nails and dig in the dirt, okay?
1: Sharing stories and precious moments, helping other women who may want to be more involved
3: on their own farm. Kind of create this relatable farm mom content and help other farm wives and moms feel like they're not alone in what they're doing. Josh was skeptical of
1: exposing the farm and family to social media at first. But the past four years, it's opened doors for the Sasses to meet new friends. And when he does appear in one of his wife's videos,
3: Mary Pat says he's a fan favorite. He is so supportive. He just doesn't like to be on camera. But when he does show up in, in his true colors, because he is a very charismatic person, when he does show up like that, he my audience really likes that.
1: But one of the ventures she's most proud of is her most recent one called Grounded Journals.
3: It's really born out of kind of the history of our own farm and having conversations with my grandmother-in-law and how she told me she wished she would have written more down through their years.
1: In that moment, she knew now was the time to start writing about their own legacy and what type of legacy she and her husband want to leave.
3: I created these journals to make a simple way for farmers to write about their experiences and also for the past generations to recollect back on their farming experience so we can keep their stories too.
1: With questions to prompt farmers and ranchers along the
3: way, her goal is to make it easier for them to capture memorable moments. This is like a really cup-filling business for me. I get a lot of feedback on how thankful people are that these have been created as a way for them to keep their family's memories. Yep.
1: And while Mary Pat's life may seem busy, that's definitely not her goal.
3: I don't take pride in being busy. So it may look like I do a lot of things, but I just do a lot of different things, but I think my main focus is always my family and my kids.
1: But with her farm and other growing businesses, she doesn't view it as a balance. Instead, as seasons of focus.
3: And if anything, the place that I've been leaning in the most more recently is being more involved on the farm and getting more operationally and bringing my kids along and kind of developing that side of me. Because honestly, when I quit my job, I I would never have thought that I would be this involved. And I'm really, really, I'm not proud. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of it the way I have been. Thank you for letting us
1: come out to the farm and share your story. And several of you have sent us emails or Facebook messages recommending someone we should feature in our ongoing Women of Ag series. So keep those suggestions coming. You can email those to me at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, more cuts to cow numbers in the U.S. with the smallest herd since 1962. But what does it all mean? Dan Bossi and Alan Brugler rejoin us next. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Alan, recently you put some miles in across the U.S., specifically across the Corn Belt. When you look at crop conditions, what stood out to you?
0: Well, along the interstates at least the crop looks better than i anticipated it would it was more consistent the corn corn is almost uniformly pollinating although there is an area in indiana that's that's clearly behind the uh, you know you can't tell from the road uh, if you lost kernel rows due, due to early stress on the corn soybeans as in general were a little shorter than uh, they might normally be at the end of july but they had good canopy and good cover Having said that, I I know there's areas off the interstate that are worse. I I will uh, say I had several questions from producers back east about the smoke and the effect that that might have on the crop, whether they were concerned that the soybeans weren't weren't getting enough sunlight. Uh, But I also had uh, some other producers saying, well, yeah, but it kept it a little cooler for the corn up until recently. So uh, mixed bag there, but. I, I would say, uh, you know, we're, we're in the 174-175 yield range on corn right now based on current conditions. And uh, the standard deviation would still allow 179 or 180 if, if we have a, a good finish to the corn crop. Soybeans somewhere over 50, uh, probably not 52 uh, based on what we know today.
1: Well, trying to get a grasp on really what crop production looks like here. Also, the demand picture. China coming in with a buy this week from the U.S. Is China continuing to be a big supplier to Brazil? Or or is Brazil being a big supplier to China? Or why is China coming to the U.S., Dan?
2: Well, you know, as you think of China, they were the big short in the soybean market following that uh, surprisingly bullish uh, June uh, seedings report uh, in late June. So the Chinese were hoping that weather would improve in the U.S., give them a break. It didn't happen. They ran against the calendar. They're now coming to the market in large stead in Brazil. They have bought out almost every metric ton available for the September loading period. You see almost 2 million tons of uh, Chinese corn now in the vessel counts in Brazil. So in both sides, I've now taken my Chinese uh, corn export, est- uh, Chinese, excuse me, soybean import estimate up to 104 or 105. That's a record. So USDA still has to make some sizable adjustments. In terms of China and corn, we think in a year ahead, they'll take about 23 or 24 million tons. So both well up from last year. The Chinese see the opportunity in Brazil as, uh, as, as as that, and they are buying it accordingly. I don't think they buy U.S. until we get to October. That's when we're competitive in the world market for both soy and, and uh, lesser degree corn.
1: Well, Alan, as we saw the Fed raised rates this week. I mean, it was expected. It wasn't a surprise. Uh, but, you know, is is that impacting any of our commodities and what are you watching as the Fed continues to debate debate more interest rate hikes yet this year?
0: The bottom line for the for the ag commodities is primarily does it affect the dollar. The dollar has dropped down the index is about 100 to 101 right now. That's helpful to exports compared to where we were uh, 6 months ago, say. But uh uh Again, we we think the Fed's close to, to stopping the rate height cycle. I don't I don't see them needing to ease uh, before the end of the year at the present time.
1: Yeah. Alan, Dan, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we're headed outdoors on the barn with Chip Flory. That's next.
9: Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Outdoors on the Farm is brought to you by Land Trust. Join our community of thousands of outdoor enthusiasts. Find properties, connect with landowners and book an experience today. Learn more at LandTrust.com.
1: Well, if you're an avid outdoorsman, you know how important it is to nurture the habitats where wildlife live. This weekend, Chip Florey takes us outdoors on the farm to Alexander Ranch in Medicine Lodge, Kansas, to see why what some may view as a pesky rodent is actually an essential link.
6: Well, I didn't know what it looked like because it was covered in cedar trees. <laughs> so first thing I had to do is Find the ranch from all the cedar trees and the neglect that had been since my great granddad had bought the ranch probably around 1900, 19, 1890, someplace in there. The short end of the cedar tree discussion by the time one is about 10 foot tall, it's going to be about eight inches around. And that tree's going to be drinking over 35 gallons of water a day. It doesn't take long to figure out why our creeks are going dry, why our ponds are going dry. So in 2016, we had a wildfire come through this ranch and it burned probably 90 to 95% of the wood. Reducing their demand on the water table has allowed us to have a lot more water in, right. the, in the springs and creeks like this beaver pond you see behind us here. You cannot buy this habitat. No. You can only create an environment that allows the animals that create this environment to succeed. Right. If you don't have a running water source, you're obviously not gonna have any beaver you know they built all their dams and they raised the water table up. They raised the water table in the soil. You know some of these some of these taller grasses around here are kind of new, yep. and I think it's because in the last year the beavers have brought this level up 6 to 8 inches. Can you
10: know the other thing that this location has in common to everywhere we've been on the ranch so far?
6: Birds. The birds, you can hear the quail. Birds have a very sensitive biology to changes in the ecological system. So they're gonna be our first indicator that something's going wrong.
10: See, look, there's these fish working right on top right there. We spent an hour out here fishing and if we wanted to, we could have put on a half a string or a bluegill. Oh, easy. Yeah, yeah. Brian, one of the things that has got me so impressed about this little pond, number one, it's clean water coming in. Yes. Number two, you've got all the vegetation at the south end where it's cleaning things up before it gets in here. And it cleans it up even more before it exits out of the north, out of the north end of the pond. It's a fantastic filtration. It seems like it's a pond that's in well balance.
6: I think so. I think, you know, we, we've got some good size, uh, good size bluegill, we've got some nice bass, yep. you know, it seems to be in pretty good balance, seems to be a healthy population of fish
10: and then the predator fish that are in here, the bass. Yeah. You gotta have them, it seems like it's a nice balance, doesn't it? I would absolutely say so. You've got a nice, controlled balance. The, the bass are gonna keep the numbers of bluegill down, but they're also allowing those mature bluegills to grow to really nice slabs for great table fare. Yeah, it's a really cool mix. Is it an acre?
6: Uh, probably not. Right, it's probably a short acre.
10: Just a fantastic uh, fun that we had out here this morning at the Alexander Ranch.
1: Thanks for letting us tag along, Chip. Well, there's a puzzling statistic when it comes to Chinese farmers.
4: We'll explain after the break. What's going on with Chinese farm equipment?
1: Well, China is losing more than just its population as we find out this weekend in customer support.
4: A few months ago, uh, somebody sent me a letter asking about China and farm machinery. If that sounds vague, it is. I have puzzled over my cryptic note that I made at the time and searched my mail repeatedly but didn't find it. So if you ask about in the past year or so about some aspect of Chinese farm machinery, please send me a name and an address and you'll get a mug. I did find some interesting stuff about this topic. The amazing underlying fact is how rapidly the number of Chinese farmers is decreasing. Rural population is a rough guide to farmer numbers, and it has dropped from about 800 million at the turn of the century to 240 million now. That's about 3.5% per year, and it's accelerating. In comparison, during the ag mechanization phase of the U.S., our sharpest drop in farm numbers was averaged about 2% per year. China has about 335 million acres of farmland, of which 240 million are in grain production. And that math indicates the impact on farm machinery use. With an average farm of a little over an acre, the obvious question is, where would you park a combine? Seriously, though, while there are millions of farms this small, they usually farm in groups big enough to use some small tractors and harvesting equipment. In fact, China exports more farm machinery in dollars than the U.S., mostly tractors and livestock equipment to places like Vietnam and South America. It imports some farm machinery, but not much. The rapid reduction in farmer numbers is a result of government efforts to, one, raise money since the government owns the land, and two, achieve some modest economies of scale for added productivity, and three, add about 5% more tillable acres simply by removing those farmhouses. This movement of people off farms to urban areas has also been driven by their need for labor during their rapid industrial growth. Despite government efforts, China is currently losing about 2 million prime acres per year to both development and erosion. It is hard to envision Chinese farmers competing in the, war, or in the market for U.S.-sized machinery, but they will likely be formidable competitors and buyers for smaller equipment uh, in places like India and Africa. Still, the rapid movement of people off their farms and their plummeting birth rate suggests China may have larger farms and equipment within a decade or two.
1: Thanks, John. Well, the heat this week added insult to injury for some farmers, but in the Southwest, they continue to battle this extreme weather this year. We'll tell you what impact it's having on their farms next in From the Farm. Well, July may have been the warmest on record worldwide. A new study this week before July was over suggested around the globe the temps in July could beat the previous record set in 2019, but just by 0.2 degree Fahrenheit. And if you're tired of the heat, well, Arizona is having a record streak of days, 110 degrees or greater. But one Arizona farmer telling us it's not unusual for them to see this type of heat.
10: The heat always impacts us, but I think the best way to describe it is we're used to that. Um, that's normal weather for July in the low desert here, uh, like here in Yuma or in, or in central Arizona. But we're kind of used to the warm weather.
1: The streak of heat in Arizona isn't the only news generator this week. It's also the all-time record low temperature.
10: As a teenager starting to work in Hag full-time myself, I can remember leaving to go to work and passing the bank signs long before we all had thermometers in our vehicles and whatnot. And it was not unusual to see 95, 94, or 99 degrees at sun up here in Yuma on the bank signs as you're driving through town headed out to the field. So, uh, that's kind of what we're experiencing now.
1: Yuma County, Arizona farmer John Boltz says his area is known for growing crops like leafy greens, broccoli, and cauliflower that's then shipped across the U.S. and Canada. But it's those crops you won't see growing here in the heat of the summer.
10: Uh, this time of year we know it's going to be hot, so we're growing crops like cotton. Uh,
1: We have Sudan grass. He says farmers were more challenged by the second consecutive year of record cool temps in May and June. So what's causing the warm temperatures this month? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says it's actually something that started in mid June.
5: We started to see some trouble brewing in Texas. More recently that's expanded into the Western United States, especially the desert Southwest. That heat that's coming up from the south is likely more related to El Nino than anything we've seen to this point.
1: And Rippey says even though signs of El Nino have been minimal so far, El Nino typically doesn't impact the northern hemisphere until during the cool season.
5: So that October to April timeframe, that's when you see the consistent signal with El Nino, usually wet in the southern United States, mild and often dry across the north.
1: Listen, I will take the heat over the cold any day. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S.
5: Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.